Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 232. So, a couple weeks ago, Stephen and I did a brew day where it was on a Saturday, and we basically co brewed over Slack. Uh, Social distancing brewing. Yes. 2,000 some odd miles apart. (laughs) Um, The best thing was, like, you were almost done brewing by the time I got started, but semantics. <laughs> we wake up at different times on Saturdays. Well, it wasn't just that. I had to go to the, the local uh, beer store or brew store. Oh, yeah. You had to go get yeah. all your stuff. Yeah, because the, uh, the one that's actually close to my house shut down due to COVID. Um, and so I had to go halfway across town to, to the other one. And then so I got there and they only did, uh, on, they only did um, pickup orders. And so I had to go back into my my car and order everything through my phone and then wait 30 minutes for them to fill it and then call me saying it was ready and then I went in and got it. <laughs> that's a, that sounds like a, 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 a that's that's indicative of modern technology, right? Yeah. Where like you're 10 feet away from all the stuff you need to buy but you have to sit out in your car and run your car, run burn gas yep. and like order everything online and beam it up to space and back so you can get it 10 feet away. <laughs> yes. It wasn't, it wasn't that bad. It would have been faster or better if I just had a laptop because br- trying to browse through, like I need to order 0.8 pounds of like flake barley. Yeah. It's kind of annoying to have to input that into a phone laptop. And I actually went to the website when I got back home and it's completely fine navigating on, on browsers. So. It's just not, made for uh, mobile it's okay on mobile yeah but you know it's a local brew store so i'm like i'm surprised that it even worked in the beginning with you know um and uh so that's that's because that's because basically you were boiling i think your second batch when i finally was like okay like i was like milling my grain <laughs> <laughs> and like getting the my hot liquor tank up to temp um but yeah my brew day went great um, hit all the numbers correctly. I was surprising, like just like, hey, for our first run on a brand new system, sounds like it went really well. For yeah, you. I was I was point one five gallons off my my dead space calculation. Point so off? Do you mean like you had less volume than you thought you? I had more volume. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, so I I was point five point one five gallons too much. Oh, so yeah, you just put that into your calculations and it'll yeah. offset. Yep, I already did that actually. I updated uh, Beersmith, which is uh, was it Brewsmith? Uh, Beersmith. Beersmith, yeah. Which I don't like that program at all, but <laughs> I didn't think you would. But it's what you and Roz use, so I'm I'm going to use it. It's uh, uh, I th- I you know I've used it for so long. It's basically a program that you can plug in all of the information of all of your equipment and the recipe and everything and it will tell you all your temperatures and your volumes and blah 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 and spit out like when and how you need to do things um and the user interface i don't think it ever started out well and they haven't fixed it they've just adjusted it you know like things just moved but it didn't get better (laughs) yeah it's just like how things are nested yeah is weird in it yeah it doesn't flow. That's the problem with that program. It doesn't like it. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it, you have to walk forward and then backwards and then forward a couple more times to find what you're looking for. But I mean, the the the, the thing about it is like 
everything is there and it's super powerful. It's just not linear in the way that you think. But I was able to get it working in, you know, a couple hours in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, get my recipe all set up. So pretty happy. How, how did your brew day go? You know, mine, mine actually went really well. So I had a couple of unknowns also. So uh, when I was back in Houston, I was brewing a handful of times just before I moved up here. One thing that was always happening was um, my I, my boil-off calculations always seem to be a little bit inaccurate. I, I usually I, I put in my calculator that I would boil off one full gallon of water in 60 minutes of a rolling boil. And that never seemed to work super well in Houston. It seemed to be variable. It was odd. But it worked out super well here. And I actually thought I would, because it's so dry, I thought I would boil off a lot more. Not really. It would end up being perfect. So I've got that set, which is great. It's always nice when you get hit the number because you like click save. That's yeah. what I will always <laughs> use now from here on out. Um, the other thing is I usually didn't have my efficiency set super well back um, when I was uh, brewing in Houston. And I was still like figuring things out with my rig. And uh, your efficiency is basically how well you are at extracting sugar from the grain or how good you are at it. And um, th this time around, I actually ended up undershooting my efficiency, which I've never done before. I've always overshot my efficiency and got weaker beers. This time I pretty heavily undershot and got much m stronger beer this time, which whatever, I don't care. That's fine with me. Um, I did ch try one thing, though. Uh, so this time was the first time I've actually ever milled my own grains. And I tried a new technique, which I'm going to do from here on out, which is awesome. It's called conditioning your grains. Have you ever heard of this, Parker? No, no. Okay, so check this out. What you do is before you mill your grains, you weigh all the grains out. So, you know, 15, 12, whatever, how many pounds of grains you have. Uh, and then take 2% of that and get that much water in a spray bottle. So, like, 15 pounds of grains ends up being something like four ounces of water. It's not much water. And then you just mix the grains up and you spritz them down with the water. And what it does is it just hydrates the hull of the grain. And, it like, so it doesn't get anything wet on the inside of the grain, just the, the hull. And so you can actually pulverize the living snot out of the grain and it doesn't turn into flour. It doesn't become dust because it's a little bit more leathery as, a as opposed to, like, hmm. papery. And I did that and I think my efficiency just shot through the roof because I ended up grinding my grain on a 25,000th uh, feeler gauge in my grinder, which mm -hmm. they recommend like 39,000. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I went really, really tight and I didn't have any dust. So I, the thing also with this brew day, I've never once been able to run my pump wide open in my mash tun because it always, uh, it always gets clumpy and it gets, uh, and it gets stuck. It's not a stuck sparge. It's just, it's, I can't run the liquid through fast enough. This time, conditioning my grain, grinding super fine, I ran my pump wide open so I could go way faster with it, which means I got better temperature control through my mm -hmm. Herms coil. So all of it was better, and all I had to do was just spray down with 2% water. So it's like, it's a no-brainer for me. Huh, I'm going to have to try that. Yeah, give it a shot. Your, your efficiency will go through the roof, which it hasn't really ever been a problem for you, you've said, but like it'll get even better than what you already have. Yeah, this this was actually the lowest efficiency I ever got. I got 70% efficiency, which a lot of people online say that's normal. 
Yeah. I'm used to getting like 80%, <laughs> which well, is Well, Be- Beersmith de- defaults to 70. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I hit 70, and I was like, man. <laughs> but um, I, think, I think I know why. I need to... I think it's my research. My research is um, I, I, I have like a, a fan jet that comes out. I really need to go. I need to have like a a a um, a I guess a rod that's got holes drilled in it. A manifold. Yeah. That just sticks in the middle of the mash for the research. What I've heard is like if you can distribute the, the fresh hot liquid equally across the top of the grain bed such that it has to flow through the grain bed that's the best situation it's hard in practice you know yeah well the the problem is with me what well, you can do that because your entire mash ton is what the grain fill oh right because you have a steel bin i have a steel uh mesh cage basket or whatever. mesh yeah 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 mesh basket and so it's kind of hard to do that because if you tr- if you hit the top it just will want to run off the sides yeah and that'll give you garbage efficiency yeah and so i'm thinking about trying because the ones i've seen that have this kind of setup they have basically a a tube that's got a bunch of holes in it and you put that just right in the middle and it's that way it spreads outward it's radially outward through the grade that's really interesting Hmm. i'm gonna try that that's kind of cool actually what i like about that is you get like kind of this hot ring that spreads outward because uh, with mine i've i've certainly measured a gradient where it's hot on top and it's cooler on the bottom so i have like even though i'm recirculating you would think the whole mash ton would be at the same temperature i know it's not yeah uh, in fact i stir my mash pretty regularly once every 10 minutes or so just to kind of like equalize the temperature throughout yeah that, that's one thing i'm going to uh, actually uh, I, I i was thinking about trying to jet the mash and actually, those chugger pumps, you just don't have the the oomph to do that. Yeah. Because um, I was hoping, like, because I have a fan outlet uh, off my pump for it. And it's just, it, it, I was like, man, like, when I ran it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that will, like, agitate it now. It agitates the top half inch. <laughs> yeah, about, yeah, about that. I'm like... It needs to, like, agitate the whole basket. Oh, my God. And so, yeah, you need a jet. And so that's actually what I was thinking is, like, maybe for season two is, like, figure out a way to actually have, like, a moving jet that's in there that just stirs it up constantly. But I'm going to try that next time. So I'm going to I'm gonna stir it more. Mm. And because I didn't stir it at all. Mm. Well, besides at the very beginning. The mash yeah. in I stirred. And then when I did my, ba- uh, my sparge out, I, I stirred it as well. You know what I, what I like about these Herm systems, these systems that recirculate the wart, you can take the top of the lid off your mash and do something to it, and you're not going to mess yeah. things up, you know? Yeah, I remember when we would brew in our, um, I know we've had like so many brew episodes and we keep talking about brewing, <laughs> but he goes, we had, we had, we would brew with our mash tons would be, uh, igloo coolers, igloo coolers or schoolers. Um, and I just remember like opening the lid off of one and just watching the thermometer just drop like five degrees. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can't lift that lid. No, can't. Okay, enough about brewing. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully, hopefully, people who do not want to uh, listen to us br- uh, talk about brewing come back now. 
<laughs> well, I mean, and we give some updates in the Slack channel. Come and check us out. Yeah. yeah. Um, so since the brewery is done, I, I said two weeks ago that I'm going to start working on other projects, faster projects to kind of just like, I, like, I don't want a long-term project anymore for the podcast for a while. <laughs> the brewery was like two and a half years. It was a long one. <laughs> so that will, the brewery will come up again next year for season two uh, of the brewery. But um, till then, I'm going to work on some smaller electronic projects. And so the one I talked about was the cat like monitor feeder thing. So, so give a description for those who don't know what it is. And so the, the problem with owning a cat when you have a lot of people in the house is the cat will always meow wanting to be fed. And this is how cats get fat or become chonkers. <laughs> oh, Lord, as, he's coming. <laughs> yeah, as uh, the Internet knows fat cats to be. Um, and so in effort to make sure my cat does not become a chonker, um, I want to make a I don't want an automatic feeder because you can just get those. And I'm like, eh, that sounds like a lot of maintenance. And they always break because I had an automatic fish feeder for a while back when I had fish and that was just gummed up and, and it's like, and then you forget about it and you're like, huh, I wonder if the automatic fish feeder has food in it. And it's <laughs> always no when you remember it. <laughs> um, so I'm like, okay, I just need something to, so that people know, Hey, the cat hasn't been fed. So we probably should feed the cat. And this way, not multiple people feed the cat. The cat doesn't have any problem with that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so I'm like, okay, it just needs to have an LED that's like, if it's green, that means the cat can be fed. And then when you feed the cat, um, you press the button or, or it knows, um, like by opening the lid on the, on the food bin or whatever, that the cat's been fed and then it has a timeout for like 18 hours. So you can't feed the cat again until another 18 hours comes down or whatever, 24 hours. And so... The main thing I want with this project is kind of working with maybe do, doing uh, a circuit design in a different way I've done before. Because an easy way to do this, because, oh, oh, yeah, let me back up a bit. The main thing I want to do is also low power. Because I want to I basically be able to put a AAA battery or a coin cell in this circuit, and it works for like a year. Don't have to worry about it. And, and that's actually the bad uh, thing to think about is... Um, if I have, oh man, I just thought of something that ruined my idea of, because the idea was to have a red LED and a green LED. Red LED is don't feed cat. Green LED is feed cat. But I was like, oh, I don't need one to tell me why I don't need to feed the cat. Just green means good, right? Well, if the coin cell dies, <laughs> then a LED will never light up and so you'll never feed the cat. <laughs> Well, okay, you could also, for lower power, you could also have it where you, like, go and check the thing where you have to press a button to, like, check. Ah. But, I mean, that would require, you want to be able to just look at it and know. Yeah, just as you're walking by and the cat's meowing like crazy. Yeah. Feed me, feed me, see more. I mean, if you had it where you, it would go out of sleep mode because you pressed a button and then illuminate an LED, you could make it last forever. Yeah, yeah, and that's that was the thing I was thinking about was... An easy way to do this would be like an EFM8 Sleepy B, and it would pull like nano amps. Yeah. And it would probably last until like my cat passed away. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, do a do a CR twenty thirty two coin cell on the back of it. Like, yeah, you'd last forever. Yeah, and because um, I've already done like the Macro Watch project, and so like I could actually probably just like lift half that code because it has an RTC set up and have a timer. And I'm like, you know, that's not really learning anything new though. And so I kind of want to do it a different way, if it's possible. And so I started looking into maybe doing like a 555 timer with like a decade counter. Hmm. And then it would roll up. And then when the decade counter overflowed, it would light up an LED. Basically, the overflow bit would be the LED lighting up. And then you'd press the button and it would reset it. Um, only problem is I couldn't find a way to make that super low power. Like 555 timers are... They're hungry. And yeah, in comparison, are hungry because they have... You know they have the one of the reasons is um, they had the they had that resistor chain in there and that just pulls power because it's a resistor chain across uh, or a resistor ladder across power and ground. Go figure. It's five k five k five k. Yeah. And um, there are some quote low power ones that use different resistor setups. They still call them five 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 timers, but they're different, I guess. Yeah. So the uh, the. The 7555 is the CMOS version, yeah. and uh, you can get those. I'm looking at it right now. In 60 microamp is the power draw for that. Okay, so that's not too bad. So, yeah, the, the traditional 555 will just chew your, your power budget. I, 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 I tend towards the... Uh, I've used the 555 a lot in uh, in circuits because they're super useful for for the synth stuff we do. But uh, I lean towards the 7555 mainly because they have a way more predictable output in terms of their amplitude. So if you're using them for like purely digital switching uh, and you have the power budget to get away with a 555, that's fine. But the 7555 is a lot nicer if you need things to be constrained. Yeah. So we could probably use a 7555 then to do mm -hmm. that. And then you would feed that into a, a counter. And in this case, it would probably be a decade counter. Um, so what kind of... Because you seem to know more about these kind of ICs than I do. Because I didn't know a 7555 was a thing. Yeah, the CMOS 555 is... They're more expensive, but they, they get the job done a lot better. Uh, so, hey, maybe, maybe we breathe life into your project again doing it this yeah. way. Well, no, I want to do it a different way besides a microcontroller. Right. Uh, the 74HC, gosh, which which is the decade counter? Uh, uh, 4017. Yeah, yeah, the 4017, that's it. Uh, what is the, what is the, like, quiescent draw on that guy? Well, you might not go with the HC version for the, no. for the low power stuff. This this one probably won't work because it looks like the PDF has been copied eight bazillion times. <laughs> this uh, the TI version of it is a fresh one. You can you can look at that. <laughs> it's probably all the exact same information. I you know you gotta love that when when you get those old. Actually, I the ones that are really fun is when you're going to look up a transistor and you don't know what the transistor is. It ends up being an old transistor, and it just ends up being a photocopied page of a not only like a data sheet but it's just a photocopied page of 
a list of transistors that were available at one point in time <laughs> and it's on there somewhere and it just says like the name and the package and that's it <laughs> it's like wow great thanks uh okay cool yeah actually the the cd 74 hc 4017 has a quiescent draw of one microamp no point one microamp wait yeah. that doesn't make any sense that's really low uh maybe that's it i don't know like i'd have to dig to this a little bit more but yeah no it's it's pretty low you could probably get away yeah with it looks that. around there yeah yeah you could get away with that yeah and then and then we would need a a way to modulate the led output because running it at like one milliamp is probably too much so we definitely need a pulse width the uh the uh, LED. I don't know what the best way to do that would be. Oh, you could use another seven, um, seven five five five, and then whenever it's active, it could like trigger a uh, uh, like a triangle generator into a PWM circuit. If you want to do this, oh, like yeah. if you want to do this zero microcontroller, do it all analog. You could have that that whole circuit be like dead. Um, until another 7555 turns on and it activates and it pulls a ton of juice at that time. Yeah, because I think we do need to have a... It needs to have two LEDs. Okay. It needs to have a red one and a green one so you know if when the battery does eventually die, you don't end up not feeding the cat. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to know when not to feed and when to feed. Right. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, here's here's a good question. Let's or say, it could be the exact opposite problem. If you had an LED lit when you're not supposed to feed, and then when it when it goes off, you're supposed to feed. You're just continually feeding the cat. Right. <laughs> well, once again, your cat's not going to mind. No, no. Well, would mind the other way, not this way. Well, okay. So check this out. Here's here's an interesting problem, I guess. Uh, so let's say let's say you have it such that green light turns on at five o'clock p.m. And that's cat feed time. And let's say on Monday, you, you're perfect. At 5 o'clock, you see it turn green, and you immediately feed the cat, and you press the button. And so it's like, okay, great. It cycles over until 5 o'clock on Tuesday. But let's say on Tuesday, you don't catch it until, I don't know, 9 o'clock at night. And you're like, oh, shit, I got to feed kitty. And then you feed cat, and you press the button. Well, now it's going to go off at 9 the next day. How do you make it such that it goes off at 5 the next day guaranteed or whatever? Uh, if you're the one who's wrong, <laughs> given the fact that the cat will not make sure you don't make that mistake. Yeah, but that's the whole point of your box. It's not the, the, the whole point of your box is to not pay attention to the cat. No, 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 no. The box is there so that the cat can't request more than one food f feeding. Okay. Because the cat is always going to say, feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. And then you look at this box and say, can I feed you? Right, but what I'm saying is if you're doing this in an analog format and you and it has to complete 18 hours or however many hours you said in between, then like if you get it off, then it's off, you know? Like you, Yeah, it's fine. Okay. I don't think that's a big problem. Got it. So so you need to so is it is it set up where if you press that button it resets it no matter what? 
Yeah, yeah, it just resets the timer. Okay, so it's just really simple. Like you yeah. could you could reset it at five p.m. and then wake up the next morning and reset it at seven a.m. and yeah. it would just start again. Yeah, it's just waiting for. I'll probably make it so it waits like you know eighteen to twenty hours before it it says okay, there is enough time pass where cat can request food again. You know, I've never had a. 7555 go for 18 hours like the problem the problem with that is you'll you'll calculate it but with tolerances and with temperature drift well, and all it, that's, it, like, that's why it doesn't really matter yeah that's why you don't have that's why you don't need precision in terms of like waiting 24 hours i'm like you don't have to like all that matters is your the whole idea is to not feed the cat twice a day got it or I, I think i think you yeah okay i think you can make this thing you could probably make this thing accurate to within, say, two hours. Yeah, that's, that's plenty. <laughs> yeah, like, that's what you're going to get. Yeah, the whole goal is to make sure a cat does not get fed more than once a day. <laughs> you know, I think I've actually seen someone do a 7555 that uh, lasted a week. But it was a big resistor and a big cap. Yeah. Well, no, is you're thinking about that's a single shot. This is, it's hitting a decade counter. So decade counter is counting up. Oh, you're right. My bad. I was thinking about it as like a as like a full on analog solution. No, with the decade counter, you're right because the, like if it just has like a a set frequency, then it'll be way more accurate. My bad. Yeah, yeah. it has a set frequency that's hitting the decade counter, and the decade counter when it hits a certain number. Right. We will. So you set the frequency, the and then you choose whichever bit on the decade counter, or even multiple decade counters, uh, is equivalent to what you're looking for yeah okay yep. never mind that's way more accurate than the way i was thinking about it i was like well there's a cat that's going to well, charge you over 18 hours yeah you're thinking about doing a single shot uh five, five timer setup which technically would work it would it would it is way not the right way to do this <laughs> no nah, you, you, your implementation is far better <laughs> i hope um <laughs> and yeah so the only thing is to figure out to make the led uh draw less power than um it what it would like if you just put like a i guess you can just current limit it. it yeah you could just current limit yeah it. i mean I, that's that's the easiest way to control just what okay so so here's the thing that i've i've learned at work most leds you know they, they're up to 20 milliamps of uh of current draw like like your your joe schmo jelly bean 20 milliamp red yeah. led they don't need anywhere near 20 milliamps for you to be able to see them turn on. In fact, yeah. 20 milliamps is like annoyingly bright in most cases. My rule of thumb now is to give an LED between one and five milliamps as a first kind of guess. Like if I'm doing a prototype, set it for one to five milliamps and then like that might even be still too bright. Then fine tune from there. So you don't need much juice. Well, even at one milliamp though, you're talking... What a coin cell's got what three hundred milliamps? Uh, well, but it okay, right? Yeah. So, but it that's just the thing. It depends on what you how you want to accomplish this. Do you just want it to be like a dull glow, <laughs> or do you want it to be like visible all the time? LEDs will kill a battery. That's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. Is so how do we how do we have an indicator that yes, it's working? And basically, there's going to be an LED lit all the time. Or it could blink. Yeah, I guess you can make it blink. Yeah, blinking is probably the best bet. 
blinking, you know, do a 50% duty cycle and you got less power draw. Yep. We'll have to blink it. Yep. Okay. Sounds like a good good start. <laughs> the design's done. Print it. Yes. Go. <laughs> Print it. Ship it. Start the Kickstarter now. <laughs> yeah, get get five million dollars right now. We'll figure it out later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's only sad because it's true. You know, I have not looked at. Uh, oh yeah, and we have a name for the the project: the Cat Feeder Unreminder. <laughs> the CFU. <laughs> the CFU. <laughs> are you gonna Are you gonna three uh, D print a little box for this and stick it to the wall and stuff? Yeah, I have a little box, and then yeah. you know, sticky tape it to the the the. Uh, Cat bin. I like you know bin. one of the things I like about this project is that you've added all of these constraints that don't need to be there. No, <laughs> that like make it hard. You're like making this yeah. hard on yourself. Yeah, <laughs> well, I gotta try to learn. I want a project that I can learn something from. Sure. Yeah. No. I I, I totally respect that. That's that's um, super cool. So you, one of the things you should do is put a spec for how long you want it to last. Yeah. Uh, I think last podcast we talked about this, I, we mentioned something like one year. Yeah, one uh, year. I'm thinking probably two years is what I want. Okay. Um, but yeah, two, we'll, we'll stick with one. Let's do one. You know, on, on your prototype, you should you should put pads um, and like a zero-ohm resistor so you can pull it off and then actually read the current draw and see if yeah. you're going to hit one year or not. Like, that's your goal. Beat yep. it. Do it. Do it it like NASA. Shoot for one year and get 10. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So there was a a synth that was at work. Go figure. I work at a synth place. But uh, this this was uh, like a full keyboard synth, not like a modular synth. That that was actually in our front room. I don't even remember why... fully why it was there i know somebody wanted to repair it at one point in time i don't even know whose it is blah 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 but it's been sitting there for years so it's like whoever it belongs to obviously didn't want it anymore and uh so i i asked the guys i was like hey can i take this home and look at it and they're like fine whatever it's broken doesn't work anyway uh and they're everyone at the at the shop was like i've tried to fix it it's not it's not working so i was like ah that means i gotta fix it uh so i i brought it home and started tearing through it and it would power up, but it wouldn't do anything. Like, none of the LEDs would light up, but I noticed it was pulling juice. And it was pulling, like, 800 milliamps at 9 volts, something like that. So this uh, this particular model was the Korg MS-2000, uh, which is, it's not an analog synth, but it's sold kind of as an analog synth. But it's, like, when you open it up, there's it's a DSP chip and... <laughs> <laughs> and a bunch of other stuff like it's like what okay uh regardless like it's got two boards in it one board is like the pots and the switches and all that jazz and it's basically all it is is a giant like switchboard with io one, board io board effectively like yeah buttons yeah. and leds and a screen and things like that and it's got a nice little ribbon cable that runs off to like the motherboard you know i was I always find that funny when the people like Whenever they see like densely populated circuits, they're like, "Oh, that's the motherboard," you know. (laughs) (laughs) But from here on out, we'll call that the motherboard. I think the service manual calls it something else, but whatever. Uh, So, so I started probing through that, and and there's there was actually two issues with the board that I found immediately. So one of the 
and so there's a there's a line filter that comes in that's basically just like a uh, like a common mode choke effectively and that had some problems so i was just like screw it i popped that off and shorted it out because like whatever i like i don't i don't need that for my own personal use here in the shop and then further down the line i noticed that there was a surface mount fuse with the number 20 written on it and i looked it up and that actually ended up being like a one amp fuse and uh, i just took tweezers and shorted it out and <laughs> and fired it up and it pulled like 800 milliamps and uh and nothing was happening and it was like okay well that's not good like where's that 800 milliamps going <laughs> like yeah. it's going somewhere and if you let it's, go it would create entropy right yeah like, <laughs> that's that's the funnest part about electronics because like something's happening but you have no clue what it is like you can't see it you you shouldn't smell it you don't want to taste it like all of these things, but like something's happening, right? My power supply, the fan is starting to whir up because it's it's dumping a lot of juice into this thing, you know? So um, I ended up just doing the Parker trick where I held the tweezers on to it for a while and then touched the DSP and was like, oh, damn, that's hot. Like, okay, <laughs> this, <laughs> this DSP is Dunsky. Uh, so I ended up, you know, yanking the, the DSP off the board, which it's it's one of these like, 120 pin dsps so it took like a ton of hot air to pull this thing yeah, off yeah. the board and uh i ran the part number on it which is an xcb 56362 pv 100 for anyone who cares about that whatsoever uh which is like a 24-bit dsp that From apparently Marola. is like ancient chinese magic uh because it no longer exists you can't find it anywhere other than like some skeezy places on eBay that are selling like one off for like 10 bucks. So I was like, Hey, you know, screw it. Let's give it a shot. So I bought one and, uh, and it came in and I realized it was like, wait, I have no clue if this DSP needs to be programmed. I have no clue if it has, or like, if it has an internal or external ROM. Basically. Right. I, I have no clue. So I, you know, the thing is I did have the, the service manual, but this is one of those service manuals that like the schematic is not really intuitive and it has things like, it does have ROM chips and it has RAM chips on it, but it doesn't say that like, oh, the program for the DSP is stored on this ROM. Uh, in fact, it has, if I remember right, it has one ROM chip that is connected directly to the main processor. So this whole board has a master processor. It has a DSP chip. The DSP chip has its own RAM chip, and then the processor has its own ROM chip. So how does that work out in terms of like, does the DSP get its program through the processor on startup or like, how does that work? Or does the processor just handle all the controls to the DSP and the DSP just functions? Also, good luck on finding a data sheet for this DSP. I have no idea. So I just I did, found one. You found this data sheet? Yeah. Is it in Chinese? No. Really? Okay. Well, I didn't have much luck finding one. Regardless. It it was the first link when I searched the part number on Google. Yeah, maybe maybe things are maybe Google's different in in Houston than it is in Colorado. Or just I don't know why it's on dashsheets360.com. Huh. Okay. I don't know. Is that a? It's got an IEEE logo on the website. Must be legit. I don't remember seeing a data sheet for this. Um, well, it's one of those where like you would immediately skip it because it doesn't look like. It looks like one of those like data sheet aggregator sites uh, that you can't get anything from. Yeah. That's what it looks like, but you can actually the get The gray market of data sheets. Yes. 
Well, maybe, yeah, maybe maybe that's what I did. Regardless, like, I don't even know if a data sheet for this would do me much good anyway. Because, like, okay, I had a bad chip. I bought a new good chip. Like, what's, what's a data sheet really going to do for me? Yeah. Other than tell me, like, I'm boned or not. Or if well, I'm not I was looking to see months. how it handled its program. Yeah. Well, as I keep, as I keep going, maybe, maybe you could tell me if, uh, if I'm right or wrong here, but, uh, but regardless, I, I ended up just taking the motherboard to the, uh, to work and I soldered on the new chip, which, uh, surprisingly for this thing, cause it was made in the year 2000 is the vintage of this thing. And, and nineties and 2000 specifically audio gear have that really crusty PCB, technology where you know we're like the the solder mask like begins to warp and foil and, mm -hmm. and do that weird this one didn't do that like it stood up to me putting some heat to it which was really nice uh so super easy to solder back on and then i just <laughs> i set up a bath of denatured alcohol and i just dunked it in there and before i left for work i just pulled it out so i think it spent seven or eight hours under alcohol <laughs> Which hey, I you know it works. So so I ended up uh, getting back home, firing it up, you know, connecting everything, and everything functioned fine. Uh, it everything fired up. You know, I, I was shorting out that that surface mount fuse, which I have since pulled off the board and just put a resistor leg across the terminals. <laughs> like, so does it play music? Whatever. It totally does. Yeah, everything everything functions great now. Like I remember, everyone was looking at this at the shop and. I don't know. There was like a thousand different reasons why it wasn't working, but no one tried Parker's trick of just let it run until something gets hot. <laughs> <laughs> hey, sometimes that works, you know. It, it you, no, it always works. Well, yeah, it, it, it always works. It just it might not be repairable. I was about to say it's not always recoverable, right. but it always works in finding what the problem was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's a, that's that's a fun one. That that was you know I'm also trying to do so, a handful of smaller projects, and that was one that was it was ten bucks. I just had to buy something off of eBay and resolder a chip. So I'm surprised it was a legit part you got. You know that's just because thing if one. you if you even if you put it on there and you powered it up and it didn't work, you'd be like, well, I guess it needs a program. That's what it would have been like. So you know, you, at it, that point, I would have just tossed the whole thing. Yeah, but because uh, I I did. I was trying to find, like, could I just buy the whole new board? Because whenever I was running my repair shop, that was a lot easier. Just, like, buy the brand new motherboard, slap it in, charge the customer, go. And, uh, man, people, like, this synth goes for, like, 600 bucks online, something like that. And a new motherboard's, like, 350 you know. So I was like, I, have to, I don't... Yeah, three hundred and fifty would make it work, but I don't want to spend that to just have it. I'll spend ten bucks, and now I got a cool keyboard synth that I can yeah. play with. So, yeah, without without a PTC fuse on it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I wonder how that chip went bad then originally. I still have the old chip. Maybe I should. Uh, I wonder if it. someone. <laughs> I wonder if uh, if uh, someone plugged the power in wrong. Maybe, but I would hope. You know, I haven't looked at the schematic too in depth in terms of the power supply but i would hope it have reverse polarity on it yeah oh you know what might have happened hmm so this this whole synth runs on a um a dc barrel jack i wonder if someone put ac like a high ac into it because it just runs on a nine volt dc power jack that uh, could be it I, I that might but but it was just the dsp that went bad everything else is fine so well it could have it could have 
you got when you do something like that, usually the the weakest um, thing dies first. The weakest thing will die, and then the weakest thing died, which was the DSP, and it pulled a lot of current and then blew the fuse. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's likely. And the DSP is probably the weakest thing in there. Probably. Because everything else that's connected to 3.3 is the processor, which is probably a little bit beefier, and some other logic chips, which are probably the most beefy in those string of things. And I wonder if something with the DSP is um, with the output or something. In terms of it got coupled with that AC signal. Maybe. Who knows mm-hmm. what happened? Because, I mean, the uh, when I first inherited Well, you the said thing, the line choke was bad, too. The li- Yeah, the line choke was, was crappy, and that could maybe be something there. Uh, the DC power jack had been desoldered from the board. Uh, hmm. And like somebody just ran wires to it, so and that's probably someone trying to figure out what was wrong. Probably, I'm it guessing. could have been someone accidentally put power down the the line input or output or whatever it's called, and <laughs> just um, plug mains into it. I mean, who knows? But like, <laughs> yeah. and I'm saying is power came down there, and that could have fed into the DSP somehow. Which you know, the output of the DSP probably goes onto that circuit somehow. Hmm. Probably through a filter or whatever, but who knows? Yeah, it's a mystery. It works now, and it sounds great. After spending seven hours under alcohol, it's got a very clean sound to it. <laughs> clean sound. <laughs> a little drunk, though. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so on a on a second note, um, I've got a cool chip that I wanted to uh, share with everyone. It's actually an LED matrix driver that uh, I've been looking at at work. So get this, it's a 39 by 9 LED matrix driver, which means you can drive 351 individual LEDs, or you can set it to run 117 RGBs and do like full color craziness with it. It's uh, made by ISSI, Izzy, or however you say that, and it's the IS31FL3741 for any one of those who wants to play along at home. So um, this, this, this chip is in a small 3mm by 3mm QFN24 package, which is kind of crazy if you think about driving that many LEDs out of this thing. So it's a matrix driver, so you get like rows and columns and stuff, and it handles all the, all the you know, everything internally. So you can individually address each LED in the matrix, and you get 256 levels of PW. PWM control, but you also get an additional 256 levels of DC current control, which is pretty awesome. So you get a ton of brightness control on this, which I suppose if, you know, for the individual colors, if you're, you know, if you're just doing like red LEDs, like that doesn't matter too much. But if you're doing RGBs, then you get a ton of color control with this thing. And uh, just it being so small and um, it, makes it kind of awesome but the fact that it's actually not that expensive either in quantities it gets you know sub dollar for this this part oh, and in man. singles it's like two dollars 250 something like that so um yeah if, if you have a need for a matrix led driver this thing pretty much fits the bill pretty well and uh oh i see how they're handling that so it's 39 current sinks by nine sources that's right yeah so you're actually running at a one thirty ninth duty cycle. Well, yeah, I mean it's got a scanning thing going matrix. on. 
Yeah, that, all I'm saying is you're you're that's how they get that power density. Yeah, is there, it's at a one thirty ninth power cycle or it, cycle I, I believe in the data sheet. Uh, I think I read earlier today that it can handle up to 38 milliamps in that one IC. Okay. So you can get it pretty bright, you know, you can, yeah. you can hammer it. So, um, one of the things is I, I've been kind of working out with one of my firmware guys though, like questions of layout versus code. Cause one of the, one of the applications that we might use this for at work, we don't need 351 LEDs. We only need about 120, which is still, you know, a respectable amount of LEDs on a board, but we don't need all 351. So, but, I, you know, if I only need 120, I get to choose as the designer where they go. But if I choose where they go, am I making my firmware coder's life harder based off of where I put them and what pins they are? Or does it even matter, you know? Uh, if they're all individually addressable and every write requires you to write the same number of bits, does it matter? And so, like, I, I don't know. I like I, I kind of like this part of design where you have to consider, like, yes, I could do everything on my own such that my life is the easiest, but I might not be thinking about the next guy in line who's got a design around my garbage, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Usually what I do with that is uh, I'll act, go into data sheet and, you're probably just looking at the hardware stuff. You got to look at the software. The oh no, I've side. been doing that all day. Trust me. <laughs> and um, you got so this is running off uh, I square C. That's right. And so with I square C, it's a you you set up a a uh, the the master address. You set the address out, and then usually you can send a lot of uh, data bytes after that. You can almost send. I think I, there's probably a limit, but. I think it's basically you can send as many data bytes as you want until you send the stop bit. Um, and so if you, let's say you're writing a giant matrix out is from a firmware standpoint, as long as they set up the, that data packet, correct. It doesn't really matter what the order is right. of the LEDs on the output. Now, is it easier to write them all sequentially versus having to jump around. It depends on how, what your dis what your display is. Like I'm saying like, let's say you were doing like a VU meter. I don't know if that's what you're going to do or not, but like it might make more sense where like the VU meter is everything that's in a single bar it's is sequential. part of a, is, is yeah, they're next to each other in the address space. Mm -hmm. It just makes code cleaner yeah that's what i'm like because i could just connect leds i don't want to say fully willy-nilly but i could just connect them in a way that makes the layout willy-nilly nicer <laughs> well yeah but right uh especially oh so that's just the thing especially with a with a package i was kind of the three by three millimeter package i was i was praising it a little bit earlier by it being really small but that also adds difficulty right because now you got to route signals in a small package to wherever they need to go. And it's nice if your LEDs are all actually matrixed on your board, but on our board, they're not. We're using a matrix controller, but they're not physically arranged in a matrix, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, that adds a little bit of complexity there too. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a pretty cool little chip, especially for the cost on it and uh, the ability to control each LED individually with 
with you know some simple writes on it. The, the the one thing that I'm investigating right now is yeah, it runs on I2C, which I2C is not the fastest thing on earth. Uh, you know, it, it's default 400 kilohertz, and this chip supports the faster one megahertz I2C. But that's the maximum speed that it it offers. And in order to write to an LED, you gotta I2C's got a little bit funky with this. Um, well, and specifically this one because it it, it it handles everything in terms of pages because mm-hmm. you know you, you don't have enough bits to actually write for the all the, the for the whole thing. So you have to like write your control register. Then you have to write your page register. Then you have to write your address register. Then you have to write your PWM register. But before that, you need to write the slave address register. So, like, in order to tell this chip, hey, I want you to look at this LED and make it this brightness, you have to write five words to it. At 400 kilohertz, if you need to do that 100 times, how fast is your total write speed? You well, know? yeah, that's why a lot of times, um, I actually always look at this and it does support it. They, you can do a burst. Right. Where you can say, you can set all that stuff up and then you, you tell it, hey, I want to send you like 400 bytes worth of information. <laughs> yeah, do it. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, it's going to take it all in. So that way you don't have to keep sending address information. Right. <laughs> Just... Why don't we just keep the address open and I'll just keep sending you bytes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's that's a lot of stuff that like if anyone's ever worked on a project where they're not the firmware, where they're just the hardware guy, uh, I think those are things that are really important to kind of keep in mind. You have to you have to work with your firmware guy because last thing you want to do is piss them off by just being like, well, here's my hardware. It's really great for me. It's super shitty for you. You know, all, like, all your traces are beautiful coming out fan out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and actually, so we use STM at work, uh, ST micro for a lot of our microcontrollers. What I've started to do, and I, I really like this personally, my firmware guy does, I don't know, he doesn't super care, but I like this. I like this a lot, <laughs> but I will start the, the, the program or I will start the uh, the STM Cube MX project where I've named all of the pins and I make sure that all the naming of the pins matches exactly my schematic and that everything is all set up such that I can just hand him the Cube MX project and whenever he starts to write code, it automatically sucks in all of my pin names, which matches the schematic perfectly. So it's like super clean transition between me and him. So if he's like, oh, hey, what does net XYZ do? He can just tell me the name and I can be like, oh, I've already set that up as a input on my processor and it's XYZ, you know, like that kind of thing. I I don't know. For, from a hardware designer, like it just doesn't, you can't just think about PCB land or schematic land. You got to think about all the other stuff in there too. You got to think about every land. Every land. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.